0: You're the one who brought me through and I never knew free.
1: Tammy, I hope you brought your Bibles. You will need them this morning. And uh, we're going to wrap up our series entitled David. And if you would go ahead and turn to Second Samuel chapter 11. And we're going to be covering about 15 years here in the next 30 minutes. And uh, so try to stay in, engaged. And I realize in, in the series of, of David, we could go for weeks and months. Maybe even another year, but uh, I just kind of have a sense within me that it's time to move on. Now, in today's lesson, I want us—I I want to remind us of something that probably few of us need to be reminded of, but but I'm going to remind you anyway. And 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 here's the reminder. This is kind of a dust statement, but uh, here it is. Life rarely goes as planned. Life rarely goes as planned. Some of you have seen that play out in your marriage. You planned on being married until death separated you, but your marriage didn't go as planned. Others of you, life didn't go as planned because despite doing your best as a parent, you have a prodigal son or you have a prodigal daughter. And right now it looks like they're not interested in coming home. For others of you, life didn't go as planned and... And your life was shattered because you or a family member was diagnosed with an incurable disease. And and you have prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. But it appears that there will be no miraculous healing. Others of you, life didn't go as planned. And you've come to the realization that money may always be tight. And you may never be able to own your own home. Or that dream job is not that dream job after all. So today we're going to let David answer the question, what should we do when life doesn't go according to plans? Now, today we're going to skip ahead about 20 years from where we ended our lesson last week. David is no longer the cool kid. He's no longer the young phenom who killed Goliath. He is no longer the darling of Israel. David is starting to show his age. He's in his fifties. He's been king for around 22 years. Now, let me just insert this. I know this is kind of our, our, our younger service, younger set. And, and for you young whippersnappers that are in your 20s and 30s, and you think being in your 50s is old, it's not such a bad thing today, okay? Uh, you may have less hair, may have less color in the hair that you have. But those of us in our 50s, we're still able to do most everything we want. And we're definitely a lot wiser. may not be able to work harder, but we can work smarter, Plus, many people in their 50s have paid off their house. They're debt-free, starting to accumulate a little bit of a nest egg, and, and, and they're financially stable to where they don't always have to order off the value meal. Not to mention, some of us 50-year-olds have grandkids, and that's super cool. So as a card-carrying member, I can personally attest that being in the 50s bracket is not so bad. Do I hear one Amen. Okay, that was kind of weak, but I realize most everybody is just a young whippersnapper here. So, But in David's world, because life was so hard, life was so cruel, life was so brutal, being in your 50s was tough. By now, David had probably lost most of his teeth. He was probably no longer a handsome dude. Probably didn't smell very good. So with that in mind, let's pick up our reading. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Again, we'll be reading from the NIV. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and, and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now, question, why didn't David go off to war when kings typically did that? We don't know. Maybe because of his age, maybe he didn't feel well. We don't know, but he stayed home in Jerusalem. Verse two, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of of Uriah, the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. And he slept with her. Now, a few lessons ago, we learned that God did not want Israel to be governed by a king. He, he wanted to rule through prophets and judges. And there were re- different reasons there. But one of the problems of having a king is that it's really hard to tell a king no. I mean, you can tell a prophet no. And you can certainly tell a pastor no. I Many of you have perfected that art whenever I come to you and ask you to lead a small group. You know how to say no. But it's hard to say no to the king. So as David sent messengers to get Bathsheba, the messengers couldn't say no. Bathsheba couldn't say no. So she ended up at the palace. And even if you weren't raised in church, you you know the story. David and Bathsheba spent the night together and and actually it probably happened multiple times. And one day she messaged David. Verse 5 saying, uh I'm pregnant. Well, David thinks, you know, I'm the king. I'm the boss. I can fix this problem. So, we read in 2nd Samuel chapter 11 verse 6. So, David sent this word to Joab, "Send me Uriah the Hittite," which that's Bathsheba's husband who was all fighting a battle. And Joab sent him to David. When when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going just some chit-chat there. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. In other words, you know what, Uriah, as long as you're here, you've been roughing it there. And you might as well go home and enjoy the comforts of your home and just enjoy being with your wife. So Uriah left the palace. A gift from the king was sent after him. But let me just say, Uriah is a very conscientious man. Verse 9. So Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. Well, David finds out that Uriah didn't go home. And and so in verse 10, he says, why didn't you go home, Uriah? Uriah said, you know what? The ark and, the, uh, and Israel and Judah, they're staying in tents. And my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? In other words, you know, my buddies are roughing it. They're, they're, they're having it tough there. They're suffering. And, and so how can I spend the night in comfort with my wife when my buddies are roughing it? So David's plan A didn't work. But, but he says, no biggie. I can still fix this problem. And we read in verse 12, then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And listen to this, at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among the master's servants. He did not go home. So even while Uriah is intoxicated, he still has some principles about him. He would not go home and sleep with his wife. But not to worry, even though now plan B didn't work, David says, I can still fix this problem. So he writes a message to Joab, Uriah's uh, commander on the battlefield. And he says, dear Joab. Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. David signed it, sealed it, gave it to Uriah who would deliver, and this is interesting, deliver his own death warrant to Joab. Well, Joab does as the king says because you can't say no to the king. He puts Uriah on the front line, suddenly withdraws from him, leaving him alone, and he dies. Bathsheba mourns his death. David secretly rejoices. He had fixed the problem. So David brings Bathsheba to the palace. She's pregnant. And David hopes that everyone will think that he's such a wonderful man because he will be raising, quote unquote, Uriah's child. But there was a slight complication. Even though David, in his own mind, had fixed the problem, yet... In a world where there were slaves everywhere, the walls talk. And word got out that this was not Uriah's child. Well, David and Bathsheba are married. And and out of the clear blue, a prophet makes an appointment with David. His name is Nathan. And he comes in and to make a point, he tells a fictitious story about an innocent man that was done dirty. And David gets upset at the man who did him dirty. And and, and you can read this story. Save time. I'm just going to jump in at the end of the story there in verse uh, chapter 12 verse 5 david burned with anger against the man and said to nathan as surely as the lord lives the man who did this deserves to die Uh uh-oh then nathan said to david you're the man well immediately david breaks he owns up to his sin. And that's the thing that's so different about David is that David messed up like so many of us, but he always came back to God. He owned up to his sin and but then Nathan goes on and gives three consequences of his sin. And here's one in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10. It says, Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. In other words, your house, by the way, David, is going to be characterized with violence and bloodshed. And we're going to see that shortly. Here's another consequence. This is what the Lord says, Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, and and this is really kind of bizarre, but pay attention. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives, give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And and we'll see that play out shortly. Then David said to Nathan, I sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But here's another consequence. But because by doing this, you've made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. Shortly after this, David's son dies. What about the other consequences? Well, a year goes by, nothing happens. Two years, nothing happens. Five years, nothing happens. Finally, 10 years later, another one of the consequences takes hold. Let me try to walk you through it. David's oldest son was named Amnon. And because he was the eldest, he was in line to become the next king. But we read where Amnon was consumed with lust for his half-sister Tamar. So Tamar and Amnon shared one parent, but not both. Well, Amnon went on a mission to get his half-sister's attention. She just ignored him. And and so one day Amnon confided in one of his buddies named Jonadab. and, And you can read this in 2 Samuel chapter 13... But Jonadab gave Amnon a strategy to get Tamar. Here it was. Amnon pretended to be very ill. And he sent a message to David, his, his father. And he said, Dad, I, I'm really sick. And would it be okay if Tamar would prepare a special meal for me? For, for some reason, she just has a, a, a way that makes me feel better. David didn't know anything was going on. He said, Sure. So Tamar brings in some food. Verse 10, 2 Samuel chapter 13. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Verse 14, but he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Well, this next verse is very interesting. Then Amnon hated her. Remember, he loved her. Now he hates her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. Well, Tamar knows that her life is destroyed forever. And in that culture, she knows she will never be able to marry. And of course, there again, there are no secrets in the palace. And so David the king, the dad, finds out he's furious. But do you know what David did to deal with this wrong? Absolutely nothing. Now, we're... Only left to guess why David did nothing. But I wonder if it was because David remembered back to his sin with Bathsheba and thought, you know, who am I to have any moral authority to correct my son? Well, now we're introduced to another one of David's sons. His name is Absalom. Absalom is David's third son. We think that perhaps the second son has died. We don't know for sure. And so if Amnon, the eldest son, has disqualified himself from being king because of raping his sister, then Absalom would be next in line. Well, Absalom happens to be Tamar's full brother by the same two parents. And, and so since Tamar was destitute and homeless, he felt sorry for his sister, took her into the home. Again, a year goes by, nothing. Two years go by when it appears everyone has kind of forgotten what Amnon, his half-brother, did to Tamar, his full sister. He comes up with a plan and decides to throw a big party at his house. He invites the entire family, even invites his father, David. But David said, you know, I'd just be a burden to you, a big distraction. And Absalom says, well, is it okay if I invite all my brothers? And David says, sure, knock yourself out. Have a good time. Absalom has a big feast, gets everybody good and drunk. And when Amnon is really soused and hammered, he sends his men into the dining hall and they murder Amnon in front of the family. Absalom flees up north to what we would call Syria. Well, King David finds out that his oldest son has been murdered by Absalom. You know what he does when he finds that out? Again, nothing. Why? Well, again, I have to wonder if it's because David remembered back back to the time when he had Uriah killed and, and felt again that he had no authority to deal with this situation either. Well, Absalom is in Syria, away hiding for three long years. And and finally, David invites Absalom back to Jerusalem. But it's interesting, when Absalom gets back, David refuses to see his son. And for the next two years, Absalom is like, you know, dad brought me back here, but he won't speak to me. He won't have anything to do with me. And the more he thought about it, the angrier he got. And so Absalom sent his servants to Joab, who was the commander of David's armies, and in a sense was the one that you would go to in order to get an audience with David. But Joab wouldn't talk to Absalom either. And so Absalom says, I'll get his attention. And he gives the orders to his men to burn down Joab's farm. And you can read that in 2 Samuel chapter 14. Well, that does get Joab's attention, as you can imagine. And Joab goes over to Absalom's house and says, why did you do that? What's going on? What's wrong with you? And Absalom says, well, it's nice to finally see you, Joab. I've been trying to get a message to you and to my father for the last two years. You've ignored me. But now that I have your undivided attention, would you please tell my father I want to see him? Well, Joab says, I'll see what I can do. And and, and Joab knows that talking with David directly won't do any good. And so he sends a woman in to talk to David. And she makes up this incredible fictitious story and, and gets David all engaged emotionally in the story. And then basically at the end of the story, the person that David is upset at in the story, just like the prophet Nathan, she says, my king, that's you. Well, David smells a rat and, and he said, did Joab put you up to this? And she stutters, says, well, yeah. So David calls in Joab and says, Joab, why did you put this woman up to this? And he said, king, your son Absalom has been trying to gain an audience with you for two years. I think it's time that you saw him. David says, send him in. So Absalom comes in before the king and David kisses Absalom. It was his way of saying, you're forgiven and our relationship is restored. But it wasn't. And the best we can tell, David never called for his son again. Well, Absalom is so angry now that he decides to begin the process of winning the people over to himself so he can overthrow his father. And Absalom was shrewd and, and what he would do every morning is he would get up early and basically set up court outside the gates to the main city and anyone who was coming to the city to try to see David to get justice for some cause, Absalom would say, hey, if you're going to the king, no telling how long it will be before you can a- actually get an audience. It may be weeks and months. He said, I'm the king's son. I'll be glad to attend to your matter. And so the Bible says through this method in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 6, it says he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He did that for four years. And after four years, Absalom felt it was time for the takeover. And we read in verse 10, then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say Absalom is king in Hebron. And since Absalom had already won the people over, when they heard the announcement that Absalom was king, they accepted him. So catch the time frame here. This is important. Sixteen years after David's incident with Bathsheba, another consequence of David's sin is being played out. Of course, one had already unfolded. His son from Bathsheba died soon after. But remember, I pointed out here that Nathan said, The consequence of of the sword never leaving his home, that is now reality. His firstborn son, Amnon, has been murdered by Absalom, who has now instigated a civil war and is dividing the entire nation. Well, then verse 13, a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape Absalom. We must leave immediately. So David once again is a fugitive, but remember he was a fugitive before. But the difference is that this time he's not 22 years old. He's now 61 years old. This was not supposed to happen. David, the the giant slayer, the, the darling of Israel, the one anointed by Samuel to be king. This was not the way it was supposed to end. And here, once again, this is where our lives intersect with the story of David. Some of us here this morning, we know about disappointment. Some of us know about heartbreak. Maybe we're even angry and frustrated with god after all god could have kept this from happening right i mean you raised him right you raised her right but look where they are today i mean you've tried to be faithful to tithe but you still struggle financially i mean you lived a good moral life but cancer still invaded your home life wasn't supposed to work out this way well, David and his whole caravan of family and friends scramble out of Jerusalem before Absalom and his men get there. And in fact, as I, I read this, I don't know how many times I read this verse and it's so graphic, I couldn't get it out of my mind. It, it, it's so gut-wrenching. Just, just look at this. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30, it says, David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. Picture this. His head was covered and he was barefoot. This was the king. And it goes on and says, all the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. So here's this scene that is so gut-wrenching because there's a family divided. There's a nation that's divided. You know, something interesting is that Zadok who was the high priest and was one of the ones leaving with David and also the Levites that took care of the sacrifices had joined in and they were carrying the ark of the covenant and and this is really really important and if you speed read this account you know you're trying to get in your bible reading and so you fly across it you'll miss the significance here but remember the ark of the covenant represented the presence of God so the people that stayed in, in in Jerusalem and you know, they, they, as they saw the Ark of the Covenant leaving, they, they thought the presence of God was leaving the city. And, and those going with David, they thought that the presence of God was going with them. And as David thought about that, as he saw the Ark of the Covenant, the, the, the implications were overwhelming. And, and this is so huge. Listen to this. David, as he saw the Ark of the Covenant going with him, he basically said, this feels like manipulation. This is like politics. And so here's what David said, and this is huge. Verse 25, then the king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. Now, the people who were around David, I guarantee you, they they groaned because one of the things that gave them courage was it in their minds. They were following the presence of God. But listen to David's explanation as why he told Zadok to take the ark of the covenant back into the city. This is powerful again. He said, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But he says, but if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. And here's what I think David was saying. He was saying, you know, every time I take matters into my own hands, I mess things up. And taking the ark with us just doesn't seem right. It seems like a a political move. It sounds like manipulation. And David said, I've done plenty of that and I don't want to do that anymore. And that right there shows David's heart. You know, David knew that he had lost his kingdom, but he had not lost his confidence in God. And he said, God put me in as king. And if this is the right time for me to leave, I trust him. Well, Absalom arrives at the city and he takes the city without a fight and he's setting up shop in the palace, trying to decide what to do. And then walks another character in the story. His name is Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel was probably Bathsheba's grandfather. He had been one of David's trusted advisors, but when Ahithophel realized that Absalom was going to be the king, he's a turncoat. He switched to Absalom's side. So Absalom shows up and Ahithophel welcomes him and says, welcome. And just as I advised your father all these years, so I will advise you. Well, Absalom says to Ahithophel, Ahithophel, what, what should I do next? And, and Ahithophel gave Absalom this advice. And, and here is another consequence that plays out. I pointed this out earlier. Second Samuel chapter 16, verse 21. Ahithophel answered, now this sounds really bizarre to us. I'll explain in just a moment. Lie with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you've made yourself a stench in your father's nostrils, and the hands of everyone with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. He lay with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now, that's frankly kind of weird. But basically, this was an in-your-face act against his father. Well, then secondly, Ahithophel gave further advice and he said, Absalom, you need to get your men and pursue your father immediately. Don't let him get organized. This is the time to take action. Do it now. Well, there was another counselor as well. His name was Hushai, and I hope you're kind of tracking with me. Hushai had actually left the city with David, but David realized that Ahithophel was still in the city. So he said, Hushai, I want you to go back into the city and pretend to be an advisor to Absalom. Try to frustrate the plans of Ahitha, Ahithophel because I know Ahithophel well and, and he's wise. He gives good advice. So I need you to go neutralize his advice and I need you to give bad advice. So uh, Absalom said, Hushai, I've gotten Ahithophel's advice. He says, we need to plan and do something now. Well, what's your advice? Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 7, Hushai replied to Absalom, The advice Ahithophel has given is not good this time. You know your father and his men, they're fighters and as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Besides, your father is an experienced fighter. He will not spend the night with his troops. So he said, Absalom, your father may be 61, but do not be fooled by his age. He and his men are as fierce as a mama bear robbed of her cubs. So Absalom, don't listen to Ahithophel. He's a wise man. He normally gives good advice. This is bad advice. Instead, take your time. And and once you gather all the tribes to yourself, then you can personally lead this campaign to overthrow your father. Which was not good advice for Absalom. Hushai was giving advice that would be best for David. Well, Absalom liked Hushai's advice and and Ahithophel knew the end was near because he knew that if David were given time to organize, there was no way that he could be defeated. And so the Bible says Ahithophel went out and he hanged himself. David, in the meantime, goes to a city you've probably never heard of called Mahanaim. He hears that Absalom is coming for him with his army. And David realizes he has no choice but to defend the people who are with him. So David, the brilliant military man that he is, he does a very smart thing. He divides his army up into thirds. But then he speaks to the commanders. He says, when you catch up with Absalom's army, be gentle with Absalom. I realize this is war. But if there's any way to spare my son's life, please do so. Well, David's generals insist that David not join them in battle. He watches his soldiers march out to confront his son in battle. Second Samuel chapter 18, verse 6, the army marched into the field to fight Israel. And the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. Why the forest? Probably David wanted it that way. Maybe led the men into the forest because his men were better equipped to fight under these uh, conditions. Verse 7, there the army of Israel was defeated by David's men and the casualties that day were great. 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside. And listen to this, and the forest claimed more lives that day than the sword. I don't know how that happened. I don't know. Maybe it was the low-hanging branches. Maybe a lot of roots that tripped up horses. Maybe bogs, swamps. We don't know. But uh, the forest claimed more lives than that day than the sword. Well, 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 9. Now, Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule. This is fascinating. As the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, oak, Absalom's head got caught in the tree. Now, earlier, and we skipped this part, but the Bible says that Absalom had thick and long hair. In fact, uh, it says that every once in a while, Absalom would get a haircut and they would weigh out his hair and they said it would come up to weigh about five pounds. So he had a a, a thick head of of hair, went riding under a large oak. His head got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going when one of the men saw this, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. And Joab said to the man who had told him, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have had to give you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But, but the man replied, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lift my hand against the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you, And Abishai and Ittai, Protect the young man Absalom for my sake. Verse 14, Joab said, I'm not going to wait. Like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand, plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And the battle ended. But it was a hollow victory because David had lost another son. The sword continued to take its toll on David's household. Well, David returned to Jerusalem, he's restored as king. But his world would never, ever be the same again. And nine years later, David died at the age of 70. Now, as we wrap up the lesson in our series, there are two things that I want us to take home with us today. Here's the first. Even though David was very flawed, and even though David sinned and broke God's law, the thing that was different about David is that he allowed God's law to then break him. He didn't continue in rebellion against God. And that that really speaks to us today. You know, most of us will have those moments when we break God's law, but could we then allow God's law to break us? And and, you know, I've always wondered how this man that committed adultery, basically committed murder, how could God later on say, David is a man after my own heart? That doesn't make sense, does it? You would think that he would have been disqualified and but, but I believe what separated David from so many people was the fact that he broke God's law. But as king, then he didn't try to defend himself. He allowed God's law to then break him. He owned up to it. And I think that's the message for us today. The likelihood is that there will be those times when we break God's law. When that happens, I believe what we learn from David is that we need to come back to God. We need to repent. And so for those of you that have messed up and you're feeling like there's no hope for me and I'm too far gone, you need to reread First and 2 Samuel and see how God loved David and respected David despite his sin. Here's the second takeaway. David, even though life did not go as planned, he never lost his confidence in God. And and I need you to really listen to this. Because this goes against kind of a popular philosophy today, but the foundation of our faith is not answered prayer. The foundation of our faith is not everything going our way. You know, sometimes we hear, well, my dreams came true, God is good. My dreams didn't come true, I wonder if there is a God. The foundation of our faith is not everything in life going our way. The foundation of our faith is not endings where everyone lives happily ever after. And I think that David, of all people in the Bible, would be the quickest to remind us that when we feel forsaken, we're mistaken. I want you to catch that. When we feel forsaken, we're mistaken. Because God never forsakes his children. You know, when we're feeling alone, when when we when we pray and it seems like that the prayers get about this high. We feel that God has abandoned us. We're mistaken when we feel forsaken, we're mistaken. And we would do well with our own broken hearts and our own anger and our own shattered dreams and our own frustration to join David in this extraordinary statement that, that he makes when he's leaving the city that we read, but all hope is gone, and David doesn't know if he will ever get to go back to the city again. And he says these words, If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But he, he but if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. In other words, not my will, but yours, Lord. I know how I want things to turn out, and and I know how I'm praying. But Lord, not my will. I may lose my wealth. I may lose my health. I may lose my family. But I will never lose my confidence in God Almighty. Because he never forsakes his own. And so as we move on to another study in God's Word in the following weeks, don't ever abandon your confidence in God. And don't tie the foundation of your faith to living happily ever after.